Thank you, gentlemen. What a joy it is week after week, is it not, to just worship our Lord together in song, raised voice to our great God. And Again, a welcome to you if you're visiting Westmount, and I know you've been already warmly welcomed, and just invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Exodus, book of Exodus chapter 21, chapter 21. If you're looking for a Bible, don't have a copy of God's Word, just look in front of you. The rack's right in front of you. You will see one there. Please take that and turn to the second book, Exodus chapter 21. Well, I'm sure you've heard the expression, let the punishment fit the crime. You've heard that. And if there's one reason why that sentiment has endured, it is this. It is a statement that reflects true justice. True justice. Now, there was a time in Western civilization when justice aimed for that. There was a time when that was the goal, that was the aim. A system of punitive justice, meaning a system where crime was fittingly punished. We think of judicial times that included things like equitable sentences, very limited parole, if that, and of course, capital punishment. And of course, with the advent of movements like equal opportunity and sociotherapy, our judicial system moved to more tolerant and lenient models, such as, and you've heard these, remedial justice and even more restorative justice as we have before us today. These systems, these modern systems, are identified by lighter sentences, quick labels, and jail alternatives. These systems, upon an offense, look to programs, not punishment. These systems reflect the move from crime-centered to criminal-centered. These systems so often look past the crime itself and focus on improvement. Of course, it all sounds very good, doesn't it? Very progressive. As such, so-called restorative justice, though, in doing that, completely misses the point. Completely. And if I were to give you an introductory illustration, we see this. This same thinking, progressive thinking, has made its way into the home. Where restorative justice has taken root... In family, rearing, children rearing, where punishment is long gone. Do you remember the days of punishment in the home? Well, it's gone, offense overlooked, siblings fighting, whatever it is, offense overlooked and moving right to maybe just splitting them apart, talking through it and so on. And just like the modern parent misses the point of the offense and getting the the root of the offense and dealing with the offense, so too does modern justice philosophy today. Listen, true justice by nature, true justice by nature does not look past the crime. No, what does true justice do? It addresses it. It addresses it. True justice doesn't rationalize the crime, explain it away, and and look to move on to a program. That's not justice. That's sweeping. No, true justice is focused on truly bringing justice to the situation. And true justice is what we will see today, beloved, 
as we return to our study of God's law. We, of course, have begun our look at the case laws here in Exodus. Remember, those specific cases and instances, the legal situations, the granular judgments that flow from the parent, the overall Ten Commandments, the overarching Ten Words we studied in chapter 20. These case laws, as we began to look at them last week, are like, and we keep using this expression, I pray it's helpful, time-stamped application of the eternal overarching law. Again, we saw that last week with the slave laws in the first 11 chapters, or first 11 verses, I'm sorry, of chapter 21. Case law application. Case law application for that time when individuals often submitted themselves to a slave arrangement. And we looked at all of that last time. In our passage this morning, we will continue to see specific ancient cases. We not only will see slave cases appear again, but also cases again with ancient things like oxen and shekels. And with those cases, what we will see in our passage today, and mark this as we begin, what we will see in God's law in our passage today is real justice. Real justice. The law of justice, we would call it, in real time, applied in a very real way. So Westmount, let us examine this law of justice. Look with me at chapter 21, and we're simply going to pick up and continue where we left off last time. Let's begin in verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn. Wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned, does not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. 
If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we look at this text of scripture and we ask, first and foremost, that you would illuminate our eyes to see it. We ask then that you would give us a mind to understand it. We ask then that you would give us a heart to receive it. And then we ask that you would give us hands to apply it. Lord, that is our prayer, and we ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. These cases, Westmount, present to us two applications in a broader sense of justice directly to Israel and in principle to us. First, we would refer to that as you've seen as capital justice. You find those from verses 12 to 17. And then we're going to look at common justice found in verses 18 to 32. Capital justice, common justice. Again, there's just so much to delve into here and learn from, so we're just going to get right to it. Capital justice. We're going to look at these first few verses. Capital justice. The first four cases, in fact. Look at verses 12 to 17. The first four cases all present a penalty of death. Maybe you caught that already. It's all the penalty of death. By the way, that would be a capital sentence. That's what we mean by a capital sentence. That is, of course, capital punishment. It means the loss of life. Now, there's one key exception to that in verse 13, as God outlines, and we're going to get to that. But in an overall sense, we're dealing with capital justice here. Look at verse 12. It says this, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. This opening case is quite simply the plainest case, is it not? It's just very plain. You cause death and you shall be put to death. Kill and be killed. Now there are a couple of things that a hearing of that should do and maybe you're thinking of them now. First, it should cause a recall of what? The sixth word, the sixth commandment. Good Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. This case law then, and now we start tethering, right, to the main ship of the Ten Commandments. This case law flows directly from the ten words, as the rest, by the way, in this opening stanza would do. Building off the eternal law, the eternal word of God, the case law, the specific judgment here, now gives the punishment. And the punishment should elicit the second response that you might have in this verse. And it would maybe be something like this. It may cause you to say instinctively, okay, life for life. Life for life. Yes, that is fair. I know that economy. Life for life. For now, I just want you to set aside modern rethinks and redefinitions of justice just to take the text as it is, life for life. The moral transcendent law of God, which is written, by the way, on all hearts, reveals this to you, Romans 2.15. You know that. And this higher fixed law of God, by the way, has always been, and I want you to think well before Moses, well before Moses. To Noah, do you remember Genesis 9 verse 6 where one of the post-flood laws revealed is this, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. And then Almighty God gives why, why for God made man in his own image. 
Beloved, this has always been the standard of God. It's always been God's law. Take a life, take an image bearer, lose yours. Also, this case law is repeated in essence, Leviticus, you just have to note it, Leviticus 24, two times, by the way, in that chapter, verse 17 and verse 21. So life for life is not just an Exodus case law thing. This is repeated case law. And the principle is found beyond the Mosaic law in Scripture because it is God's law of justice. Now, at this point, I'm confident those with the gift of mercy in the room say this. Yes, I see the justice, but what of mercy? What of mercy? You're thinking of maybe a number of scenarios. You're saying it can't be as plain as that. And Maybe you're thinking of a scenario found in verse 13. Look at the scenario in verse 13. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But, you see the word there, that word triggers an exception, and it is this, if he did not lie in wait. Do you see that? If he did not lie in wait, what does that mean? In other words, if there was no intention, no premeditation, no planning, and this happens, if this death, look again, verse 13, if this death was God letting him fall into his hand, don't you love the sovereign language there? Sovereignly God overseeing a bit, he lets him fall into his hand. In other words, this death transpired under the sovereignty of God. Thus, if this death was not man's plan, but God's sovereign plan, if that is the case, then what? End of verse 13. I, God, will appoint for you a place to flee. If you were to look at the parallel in Deuteronomy 19, the illustration is given of the two men that go into the forest to chop wood, right? And the one has the axe head. He goes to swing it. It falls off and strikes the guy he's with and he dies. That would be unintentional and that would be an accident. Yet here we see it addressed. This here, as we come back to our text, that's an ancient picture of mercy here in this case law. I mean, a life was lost, right? A life was lost, it's true. And only looking at Genesis 9, we would say, then he should die. Then he should die. And only a look at Genesis 9, and only a look at just that dimension of a standard of God, would say, it doesn't matter what the circumstances is, he's dead, and you should die. And I want you to know something as we pause here for a moment. Do you know that ancient civilizations do just that? Many, many, and I read them this week, ancient law codes would say it doesn't matter the circumstances. If he's dead, caused by your hand, you die. And we need to just pause for a moment and be reminded of something very important. That is those gods, or that's how those gods operate, but it's not the way your God operates. It's not the way the true God, Yahweh Almighty, operates. In fact, it's not in line with his character at all. Not Yahweh, Israel's God. Looks at what? The heart, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Our merciful God, who is just, But is mercy, our merciful God, sees no intent in the heart. This was not planned. This was an accident. As such, Yahweh makes provision for the offender to flee to a place of mercy. 
specifically called, and you see these in the law when you read them, they're called the city of refuge. These, of course, receive fuller outline elsewhere. I'll give you one chapter in particular, Numbers 35. I mentioned Deuteronomy 19 already, Numbers 35. 48 cities designated for refuge, overseen by the Levites for aid. For aid. Places, Numbers 35, 11 says that the manslayer who kills without intent may flee. That's in God's law. He may flee to it. Interestingly, by the way, as you hear that term manslayer, it may remind you of a law we have today, does it not? Manslaughter. And why do I have to point that out today? Because it, it tells us and it reminds us that modern law, if you tether it all back, was based on biblical law. You see that? Modern law, as it should be, should be tethered to the law of God that protects unintentional killing. That is how civil law has always been, certainly by men and women that feared God, based on God's standard. Manslaughter comes from this idea in God's law here. And of course, the point of manslaughter laws is this, a recognition of no intent. Like here, God knows that there is killing that is unintentional. There was no plan drawn up for this loss of life. As such, this case law legislates and manages such cases, and here it is with the character of the one whose standard we're looking at, God and his mercy. By blood, the offender deserves death, but by grace, God provides refuge and mercy. Now, where you find law, is this not true, beloved? Where you find law, you will always find those seeking to misuse it, to bend it, to shape it, to twist it. That's what you always find, and it's no different here. Look at verse 14. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And you may say, what's he doing at the altar? And that's a great question. The situation described here involves a willful murder, willful murderer, and you see this, but he fleed. He's fleeing. This is as we pick up the picture here. So in this case, there was intent to kill, but the murderer flees to an altar. And by the way, presumably, one of those built in Exodus 20, verse 24, which we've looked at already, and very likely in a city of refuge. Do you see what's going on here? He flees to the altar. And you can just imagine what would be coming out of his mouth. And you can just envision the scenario where he looks and he's claiming and wanting this law exception. You're not going to do this to me. I'm clinging to the altar. I'm clinging to one of Yahweh's altar. You're not going to do this to me. I know the law and you need to give an exception. And I want you to notice, Westmount, how things never change, do they? Your anthropology, your humanity never changes. People still today, that's why they hire really big lawyers, looking for loopholes, looking for twists to get out of things. It's no different. Look at ancient Israel, you see the exact same thing. And God says here, go, take him from the altar, verse 14, what? So he may die. In other words, carry out justice. He willfully killed another, so according to the law of God, he must die. He willfully, you see that? Killed another, so he must die. Beloved, listen, modern discomfort aside, and I know there's some, that's the law of justice, and that's what the text says. God's true justice. 
Look at the next case in verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Here again, a case law flowing from one of the Ten Commandments. This time we see in view here, look at it, the fifth commandment. Scroll back to Exodus 20, verse 12, the fifth commandment. And you know this one, to honor father and mother. Look, church, that's ill treatment of parents. As we come back to verse 21, or chapter 21, we see flowing from the ten words how one can dishonor parents. And this is just one way. This is ill treatment of parents, striking mother and father. And here God says that deserves death. Yes, how serious is this command from God? Well, again, we just have to point out the one we just said again. We need to make sure that we see this. Verse 15 says very plainly, whoever strikes his father or mother, right, shall die. We also want to point out that word strike there in verse 12 is the one in verse 15 as well. Same word for strike, or sorry, in verse 15 is the same in verse 12. Yet what it doesn't say here, and note this with parent, it doesn't say that they strike parent and they die. Do you see that? It doesn't say that. It just says you strike the parent. In other words, it doesn't matter what the outcome is. The Hebrew word behind that in the original, by the way, with the word strike, is, it has this sense of striking with the intent of death. So they may not die, but you, that was your intent to do harm to them, grievous harm. But in this case, here it is in the law of God with mother and father, death doesn't even need to be the result. We've already seen what's in the heart for one to strike his parents. Death doesn't need to be the result. The case law here simply speaks to the intended harm for dad or mom. You strike dad or mom so as to harm them and you warrant death. Thirdly, we'd say this. This is not just a physical deal. Scroll down to verse 17. We'll come back to 16 in a moment. Whoever curses his father or his mother, what? She'll be put to death. Same punishment. I would suggest you same harm. Listen, strike them or curse them. That is harm with fist or tongue, and it deserves death according to Yahweh. Remember, what did we look at with cursing? Cursing is speaking in a way, regardless of what's coming out of your mouth, cursing is speaking in a way in which you are wishing harm on another person. So you may not be using your fist, but we often know how deadly the tongue is. You're cursing mom and dad. Enough said about cursing, but I need to remind you with a text like this, the law confirms this again and again. Leviticus 20 verse 9 says this, listen, for anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. In other words, cursing equals blood upon him. Amazing. This case law is bolstered elsewhere in God's word, by the way. It doesn't stop. Consider Proverbs 20.20. You can note it. If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. Do you think Yahweh cares about how we treat our parents? By the way, we need to be reminded of modern parental cursing. certainly doesn't look anything like this. And Often today, I have to submit to you, it's not like letting the expletives fly. That's not what modern cursing looks like. I'll tell you what modern cursing looks like. It looks like neglect. I heard the account today, again, in God's providence of a situation where 
a parent is in decline. Two siblings are talking about that, and one is taking the lead, and basically some financial need, not to mention time need is needed. This one sibling's like, can't even get a hold of said sibling. The parent is declining. I need help. And the other sibling has the audacity to say, well, you know, I'm really busy, and oh, and I know you need money for said parent, but you know, my, my daughter's got this lesson, and we have this thing to do. I was angry. I have never seen... But you know, listen, this is just the order of the day. Children have stuff to do, busy lives, neglecting parents. And you know what they're doing? They're cursing them. They're cursing them. This is how lawless we are. We don't know to give it an ancient label. We just do it. We give harm to mom and dad. And you can see as you sit there maybe feeling like I did this week... And say, where's the justice in that? We begin at least by seeing God's heart for justice here. Beloved, see the text. See the text. See God's law. I want you to see that this morning. Remember, honoring dad and mom is God's law. It has absolutely nothing to do with special days set aside. It has absolutely nothing to do with sentiment. It is the law of God that you honor mother and father. One more case in this first section before we move on. Look at verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Do you see the pattern here? These case laws, one after another, flow from the Ten Commandments. Here the Eighth Commandment is in view. Look at Exodus 20, verse 15. It says what? You shall not steal. Do you see how everything is flowing from the Ten Commandments. I referenced this verse last week as the verse that indicts modern slavery. And again, we just simply need to highlight this verse. Ancient law codes, by the way, by the way, when you consider in history human beings being stolen, did you know that most ancient law codes only had laws for nobility being stolen? In other words, the ancients were like, look, you can steal people, just don't steal the nobles. Don't steal the well-to-dos. And I ask you again, but what of Yahweh? Yahweh says, all people. I have a law for all people. And I need to point these out all the time because people will always like to go to the Mosaic law and point out all kinds of things that they don't like and they feel are inconsistent. But God's mercy and his character just ooze out of this law. Again, this is Yahweh, God alone, God alone. This law is for every human being made in Yahweh's image, everyone, not just the well-to-dos. God's law protects every human person. And listen, God says this, hear his law. The human person, the image bearer is not to be stolen and is not to be sold. This law, by the way, restated in Deuteronomy 24-7 with this action clarifier. Listen, the thief in this case must be killed. And then listen to this. This is how serious it is with Yahweh. The thief must be killed so that evil, the evil is purged among you. One last thing to highlight here. Look at the end of verse 16. Anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That is not just the thief seller. Do you see that? It's not just the thief, the seller. 
That includes the buyer, the one purchasing the stolen human being, the one saying yes to this wicked economy. Him too, he cannot say when they find him in possession of the victim. And can you not just, modern person, can you not just hear it right now? Well, I didn't steal him, I just bought him. Even more, you can picture some of the audacity. I don't know where he came from. Wow, he's in my my house. There's no excuses with Yahweh. You are in possession of a stolen, an image bearer that's stolen. Deflection, denial, still lawless today. And beloved, I've said this how many times at Westmont, blame shifting is as old as what? The garden. It's as old as the garden. Her fault, your fault, God. And so too, listen, is culpability. That's ancient too. Culpability, responsibility. You aid by involvement, such a theft by purchase, then listen, according to God's law, you too must die. Church, that's capital justice. That is God's protection, protection against cases that harm life. And I ask you again, Is Yahweh in the business of protecting image bearers? Of course he is. That's the law of justice, the true law, God's law. Right, we move on from capital justice, capital punishment to common justice and common punishment. Common justice, continue in verse 18. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist... And the man does not die, but takes to his bed. Then, if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. Wonderful pictures here that really bring the law of God to life. In this next case, we have a scenario where two men are engaged in a quarrel, and that's not a hard scene to envision, right? Two men in a quarrel... We know that well. As quarrels can often go, it escalates and it gets violent. That's what quarrels do. Is that not true? It escalates and it gets violent. One man grabs whatever is in arm's reach. Here it happens to be a stone or if you don't have that, your fist. And proceeds to strike. By the way, that's the same word as before. Strike the other man. Now to be clear, as we look at this case, if the man hit was to die then we default to what in God's law? The case we just looked at, right? This is very clear. We're just tracking with the law of God. If he's to die, you then would default to another case, but he doesn't die. In this case, the man doesn't die, but is injured. In fact, look at the injury depicted. How much is he injured? He is laid up in bed. And here, more importantly, he's immobilized. So how is justice rendered here? Look at the end of verse 19. The offender must pay for the man's loss of time right up to being fully healed. Don't you love that? Thoroughly healed. Yahweh covers it all. That's fair, right? That's fair. The offender injured the man and laid him up, and thus, especially in ancient times, he couldn't work. He was immobilized. He couldn't provide. So true justice says the offender provides for that man, the victim, in his time away from work. You see that? Now, we do need to mention what is not here. I want you to look very closely. You will not see a law for pain and suffering. And you know, as you think about many laws like that, these modern additional laws, always looking for more, always looking for the intangible, looking for what's unseen. 
Now listen, friends. That is not to say the man's injuries didn't hurt. Injuries always do, don't they? The man's hurt. But what we're pointing out here is in the law of God, you don't get any of these intangible laws like pain and suffering. Common, everyday justice deals with what is seen. Deals with what is seen. However, what is so often missed here is the context. Look at verse 18, because you might say, well, he's injured. But look at the context. Go back to verse 18. What is the first, what's the context? When men quarrel. Do you see that? Both men were quarreling. Both men entered into this. Presumably could have pulled the plug at any time, and as such, they knew what they were getting into. It says, when men quarrel, and I might submit to you, this is just me. Sometimes, sometimes, it's about as illogical as two boxers after a fight having one boxer sue the other for pain and suffering. That's what we do. Common everyday justice defined here says you simply provide for what is lost. Living in a cursed-filled evil world with other people means you're going to hurt. And you will figuratively beat each other up. Next case is found in verse 20. When a man strikes a slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he's not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Again, I remind of the very different economy of ancient slavery in God's people. And again, we covered that all last week. There are no such laws, by the way, in antiquity protecting slaves like God's law does here. I just I love to point these out all the time. How different God's law is. Antiquity knew nothing of this. You would imagine an Egyptian saying, You have a law to protect slaves? What kind of deity do you serve? But yes, Yahweh does. God's law says this, verse 20, you strike a slave. And can we put this in, in highlighter? It matters not that it is a slave or if it's a man or if it's a woman. You, you strike a slave, you strike an image bearer and they die. The punishment is this. The master dies. That's what avenge means. They're dead as well. Similarly, as we've just seen in the verses prior, if the slave does not die and instead is laid up with injury, then there's still a punishment. Again, we just are tracking with the law. In this case, since the slave is his own, he would lose what? If he's his own slave, he's going to lose productivity. He's down a man, so to speak. From the slave laid up in bed recovering, that's a direct loss to the master. The slave's earnings and provision come from the master. And that's what the end of verse 21 means, that the slave is his money. So who really takes the loss here? The master takes the hit. Related to this is the slave law found a few verses down. And again, we're just pulling together the ones that are related here. Go down to verse 26. Don't worry, we'll come back to 22. Verse 26, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Again, we're dealing with these because they're related. A couple of things here to note in this specific case. First, notice how the slave is protected under God's law. And it just we need to see this. Yes, human beings then had the same curse bents as they do today. And for all we said last week about the economy of slavery in ancient times, masters still abused their slaves. They treated them wrongly. And undoubtedly, there would have been abusive masters, just like colonial slavery. 
Yet here in Israel, unlike the colonies, by the way, there are laws for such abuse. You know, Job had it right when he declared of slaves in Job 31.15. He said this, Did not he who made me in the womb make him the manservant? And did not one, God, fashion us, that is both slave and master, in the womb? Secondly, look closely at these laws for abusive treatment. And what does it not say? This is really important before we go back to the verses we need to cover. It doesn't say, since the slave's eye is destroyed, then you destroy the master's eye too. Do you see that? It doesn't say that, does it? You would say, well, that's fair, though. I've been tracking with this. That would seem fair. Slave's eye, master's eye. No, it may seem just. Again, if you're thinking of the verses we read earlier, and especially if you're peeking at verse 24, and we know that most famously, right? Eye for an eye. It may seem that. However, what would be missing in that very wooden, literal judgment is the fact that the slave is still property of an abusive master, right? He's still, sure, you have eye for eye, but he's still property of that abusive master. Now we're going to come back to verses 23 and 24, but first think, This is what a wooden eye-for-an-eye law would miss here. And let's not make the mistake that many have when they go to the ancient eye-for-eye laws. And they miss the lingering injustice if you were to apply that so wooden. Now, why does that need to be clarified here? Well, for one, in God's law, listen, what did we say off the top? The punishment what? Always fits the crime. And in this case, an eye-for-an-eye, a tooth-for-a-tooth punishment means the master... More than destroying his slave's eye, sinned against him by treating him as less than a human being. You see that? He's demonstrated he does not know how to treat another human being. Thus, his punishment must reflect that. Do you think he's fit to be a a master, a slave owner? No, he no longer will have the services of that slave because of that treatment. And lo and behold, that's exactly what the law says. By the law and mercy of God, that slave is no longer subject to abuse. He is now free. And Westman, I would submit this to you if you're tracking with me. That is true justice, is it not? He doesn't know how to treat another human being. Let him go free. It actually would be unjust for that slave to remain with him. In fact, the only difference from serving a wicked master before noted, the only difference would be that he now serves a wicked one-eyed master. Who's still wicked, right? We know it can't mean that. And one would imagine, can you imagine, if he was wicked with two eyes, how much more wicked would he be with one eye and an injury because of that? He would be bent on evil. No, with God's law, here it is, so important. What does eye for an eye mean? With God's law, it means the punishment fits the crime. The punishment always fits the crime. It is proportionate to the crime. It's proportionate to the misdeed. Now we must hang on to that understanding as we back up to verse 22. We don't want to miss this. Hold on to that because this is where you actually see eye for an eye. Look at verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fine as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determined. But if there's harm, then he shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. 
so emphatic there, but what's so interesting about where you have eye for eye is the context. The context. Listen, a case is described here where men are fighting, and who is the victim? A pregnant woman is near. And by the way, before we get to how odd that may sound, I just want you to think, if you were to apply wooden eye for eye in this case, it's impossible. You can't make an offender give birth to a child that he can't even conceive. You can't do that. So it wouldn't even work in this context. But secondly, you would say, this sounds odd that women are near fighting men, but it wasn't uncommon in ancient Israel. We know this by Deuteronomy 25.11. describes the case of a wife looking to rescue her husband from a fight. And that's in Deuteronomy. Whether the woman here in the Exodus case was as ambitious, we don't know. She just was in proximity. We do know she was close to a fight. In fact, she was close enough to be hit. Now that's the case, the situation. Now let's consider what God has to say here. And as we must continue to see in God's law, there's more than just a surface read. First of all, it needs to be pointed out that ancient case laws again I feel like I'm saying this repeatedly in this message, would know nothing of this. I mean, a law protecting a bystander, that's number one, but a law protecting a bystander who happens to be a woman would be something absolutely unheard of in ancient times. But again, not for Yahweh. Not for Yahweh. Secondly, one could say, well, she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's what you hear today, right? She's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Again, Yahweh says nothing of that modern sort and said what? What does Yahweh say? God says, if she's hit and that hit causes a premature birth, even with no harm. So presumably the baby comes out, everyone's healthy, there's no harm. Even with that, the one that hit her will have to pay a fine as determined by the husband. And to ensure there's no overcharge or abuse, it actually then is submitted to the judges. So the father determines it, but then it's submitted to the judges. That's a really, really good due process. Even with no harm, the young couple now have a delivery. And maybe when you think about why there's some compensation here, maybe they're not ready yet. Because of this harm, baby's on the way. And so an appropriate fine and compensation is given. Now, in the case where there is harm, God's law says this. Again, as we looked at verses 23, 24, and 25. Eye for eye, foot for foot, and so on. We've already seen that in those verses that follow, what this means is what? Whatever the punishment for this offense, it's in line with the harm, with the crime. And I pray this all makes sense now. It is proportionate to the crime. Here, too, is defined famously by eye for an eye is appropriately what we would call common justice. The punishment fits the crime. Justice is suggested, discerned in community. You have family, judges, and all. This is God's law, God's standard. Now, I cannot believe the time, but we need to reference the fact that we have to talk about Jesus. Because some of you are saying, wait a minute, didn't Jesus say something about eye for an eye, Right? So turn to Matthew 5. Let's do that before we're completely out of time. Matthew 5. Jesus, as we've commented already, and particularly when we went through the ten words, had many comments about the law. But remember, as you turn there, and we're going to orbit right around verse 38, Jesus so often was dealing not with the law itself, but a misunderstanding and a perversion of the law. 
In fact, we need to repeat this as we descend into the law again or into Jesus' explanation of the law. Remember this. Look at, actually, go back up to verse 17. What did Jesus say? Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. So whatever Jesus is going to do famously here, we know he's not saying, well, you know, you heard eye for an eye, but let's, you know, scrap that. We got something new. That's not what Jesus is saying. But let's look at what Jesus says. And I pray this is helpful. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now I'm going to leave the rest there because we'll be back in this passage next week. What is Jesus saying? Well, first of all, what he's not saying is it doesn't apply anymore. Again, remember, Jesus is not abolishing the law. What he's often, he's not repealing it. What is he doing so often? He's amplifying the law. Remember that? He's expanding it. He's saying, this is what you thought it meant, but let me tell you what this means. But here's a dimension we have to grab hold to as we, we end this morning, and it's this. Know what Jesus is doing. The Old Testament law was so focused on who? The criminal getting the punishment that they deserve. And it, and it did that. It absolutely did that. Well, Jesus, look at it. He's not focused on the criminal, is he? Who is he focused on? The one offended. Do you see this? This is what was so revolutionary about Jesus coming. People, you can just imagine the lawgiver. Can you imagine the lawyer and say, whoa, 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 what about section 17.6 of this mission and this law, right? And they want to say this. And Jesus says, no, no, I'm going to look for a moment here as I expound the law to you and look at the victim. And this is what turned the world upside down after Jesus. The way that victims responded to offenses. People still ask me today, well, I thought making a, being a Christian would make a difference in my life and I wouldn't have this, that, and the other. And I always say to them this, no, 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 no. Christ, being a Christian means you have a new way in which to live life. That's what we heard already this morning, right? You have a new way in which to respond to life. And Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount, you have a new way, and this is the tough stuff for us, isn't it? You have a new way in which to respond to offense. And we're going to see this more next week. It's not to go back and demand every last penny and do this. No, that's not the heart of a Christian. Now, why is that not the heart of the Christian? Because it's not the heart of the Christ. Right? Aren't you thankful, Christian? He's not demanding every last penny of you, pouring out his wrath on you and committing you to hell forever. Are you grateful for that? Amen. Amen. And Jesus says, with the law, with our perversions of the law, with our extreme and, and to the measure senses of justice, which always are flowing in these cases, and this is what Jesus is bucking up against, a sinful intent, is reminding the Christian it wasn't true of you. I am a God of justice, God says, but I am a God of what? Mercy. The same mercy that I gave to you, because is it not true for all of us to claim Christ? We should be going to hell. But we're not. And I ask you this morning, where's the justice in that? I don't know about you. I know what I deserve. I should be hellbound, and I'm not going there. Where is the justice in that? But listen, in Christ... 
The punishment fits the crime. Why? Because the perfect God-man took on what we deserve, Christian, repentant Christian, what we deserve. He took it on and said, I will take God's wrath. And in that day, when you stand before your maker, it's go- he is going to look on me and my perfect righteousness that took your penalty and imputed my perfect righteousness to your account. That's the justice you do want. That's the punishment that fits the cross. And that's what we're talking about here this morning. So as we come to the law, and I'm just so flush out of time, and we're going to pick this right up next time. Let us keep in mind the law of justice, God's law of justice, but let us not forget, if I can say it this way, God's law of mercy. God's law of mercy. That's why we're here, is it not? That's what we need to sing about now. Pray with me. Father, we thank you, your precious word, your precious law. We thank you here at Westmount that you're a God, not just of justice, but a God of mercy. We thank you that you have lavished that mercy on us. Lord, we know what we deserve. We know what punishment fits our crime. And yet we know what we receive in Christ, and that is perfectly just. So God, we thank you. Receive our worship now in Christ's name. Amen.